Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're zooming in from today. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. And I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing series. These briefings provide an opportunity for you to hear directly from our most distinguished scholars. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions and I encourage you to submit yours. Couldn't be easier to do so. You just go to the bottom of your screen where it says Q&A, you click on that, type in your question, send it our way and we'll do our best to get it to our distinguished guests. Uh, sometimes we get too many questions though. So if we don't get to yours, don't take it as a slide. It was just, we ran out of time. Joining us for today's briefing are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows, David Brady and Doug Rivers. They're both uh, senior fellows and Stanford political scientists. And the topic of our briefing, the 2020 election, what the polls did and didn't get right. Dave Brady is the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, GSB for short. Doug Rivers likewise is a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution and a Stanford University political scientist. He's also the chief scientist at YouGov PLC, the global public opinion and data company. He also is the author of a very influential poll that YouGov does with The Economist comes out every week, was must viewing during the election cycle. Gents, I know it's been a busy past couple of weeks for you uh, as you've been pouring through all the post-election data. So thank you ever so much for making the time to join us today. Uh, I'd like to begin with a question to the two of you, um, and that is on polling itself. There's a very long article in the Washington Post yesterday by Philip Bump. Um, he likes to dive into data and usually does pretty thoughtful work. And here's what he found. He found that in 2012, uh, 35 polls overstated Mitt Romney. In other words, the polls showed Romney doing better than he actually turned out. In 2016, 38 polls overstated Hillary Clinton. In 2020, 45 polls overstated Joe Biden. So here's the question, gentlemen, for all the talk four years ago about doing a better job of capturing the sentiment at the swing state level, it seems like we're regressing going from 35 to 38 to 45. Doug, why don't you kick this off? How to explain this backward number? Well, in 2016, um, the national polls were off by only one to two points on the uh, Clinton wow. lead. Mm -hmm. uh, the state polls, particularly in the battleground states, overstated the Clinton lead and in particular predicted that she would win in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, what happened there is what typically happens in polling, which is you're too high in some places and too low in other places. And at the national level, that tends to average out and uh, no harm, no foul. Right. Um, this year, um, if you look at actually the margins of error in the individual state polls, uh, the outcome was often usually within the margin of error, but uh, always or almost always too high on the Democratic vote. Uh, and what that meant was the national polls on average were too high as well. Right. Um, what we expect normally is, um, you know, polling is, uh, doesn't give you an exact number. It gives you a range. Um, and we expect that uh, your best guess to be sometimes too high and too low. And here we had a systematic overstatement of that. 
Right. And so pollsters for the last few weeks have been scratching their heads trying to figure out why that happened. Um, that uh, you say, you know, no improvement over uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to think of it as, uh, well, the Midwestern battleground states weren't any different than all the rest of the states. Uh, but, uh, you know, overall, the polls did overstate how well Biden would do. Right. But Dave, Dave, there is to the public, at least, there has been a pushback, and it's a question of do we trust the polls? So let me ask you, do you trust the polls? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. I mean, the, what Doug said is correct. So the, the question is, how accurate, how accurate are they going to be? So uh, when the bump does those things, suppose uh, the YouGov poll, the last ones I worked with, mm -hmm. showed that Biden would get about 52% of the vote. Looks, looks mm -hmm. like he's going to get 51. It's true, the Trump vote was underestimated. Uh, it was a turnout, turnout problem. But the question is, is that off? Yes, it does overestimate Biden, but that's different from say a Trafalgar poll, which said uh, Trump would win by uh, X amount, or uh, a poll that says um, Biden would win Wisconsin by 17. Right. So I do trust them, but there's a question of, uh, you, 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 you can do what real clear politics does, you can average them, uh, mm -hmm. and then you have to actually know the pollster and how they're trying to do things and whether it's an internet poll or whether it's a telephone poll and uh, with those sorts of things, yes, I do trust them. And uh, within the margin of error. Okay. Doug, are there too many polls out there? Um, yeah, I don't think we need uh, hundreds of polls to say who's leading. And uh, in fact, uh, rather than reporting individual polls, it would be good if uh, the media only reported the average. Uh, but this was a year in which the averages were off by more than they had been in previous years. Um, there's lots of uses for polling other than just the horse race. Uh, you know, understanding what people think, what's important to them, how they evaluate the candidates. There's a big set of stories that uh, should get more coverage than they do than the horse race. Uh, however, I think it's fair to say if you can't get the horse race race, uh, why do you believe uh, the rest of what's in the polls? Um, so we, we do care a lot about uh, trying to get the, uh, the actual outcome of vote right. Um, and uh, I think the overwhelming fraction of pollsters are uh, you know, transparent and committed to uh, uh, to having a methodology that is reliable for uh, measuring what the public thinks. I, one thing that one thing that happens here is the turnout that that's uh, pollsters are not very good, and neither are political scientists who aren't pollsters, which is the turnout ratio. And just let me give you a couple of examples of that in Arizona uh, between twenty six the Clinton vote in twenty in twenty sixteen the Biden vote. There were 510,000 more votes for Biden, and there were 430,000 more votes for Trump. In Michigan, it was 527,000 more votes for uh, Biden and 370 for Trump. So across the board, in the states that uh, like Florida and Texas that Trump won, turnout was higher than we expected for Trump, but it was up for everybody. And so a part of the problem is the turnout models and where you say, well, who's a likely voter versus a registered voter? That's a problem and that's not easily fixable. 
Right. If people who participate in polls tend to be interested in politics and tend to vote at high rates, so it's always a problem in polling of measuring uh, the least interested part of the population, the marginal voters that come in and out. Um, and you know, one problem we faced this year was unprecedented turnout. Uh, it looks like it's going to be about 155 million voters. Right. Um, the total number of registered voters is hard to get a precise fix on uh, because uh, voter registrations, they have duplicates, expired registrations, uh, people who died, moved, and so forth. Right. But we think that's something on the order of about 80% uh, uh, to 85% of registered voters turned out in this election. That's much higher than normal. Well, that is staggering. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm Bill Whalen, and you're watching the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Dave Brady and Doug Rivers. We'll be getting to questions from the audience in about uh, 10, 15 minutes. So you have time to get yours in. Just go down to the bottom of your screen, click on the Q&A tab right away, and we will get to your question. Uh, so gentlemen, you have been going through data for the past couple of weeks. Uh, I'd like each of you to give me a data point or just kind of a big picture item, some piece of polling information that you really sums up what happened in 2020. I know, Dave, for example, you've been looking at independent voters all along. Yeah, the independent voters. So in one way, think of 26, uh, 2020 as a replay of 2016 with more turnout and a different uh, result. In 2016, independent voters went for Trump. In 2020, independent voters went for Biden. Um, turnout was bigger. If you supported President Trump, you voted for Trump. And, there, and he never got above 46, 47% in all the polls mm -hmm. on that support. And that's about the percentage of the vote he got. But he did turn out his vote. And I guess the other one was, if you ask uh, people who supported uh, Trump, why did they support? 80% uh, 80, 80 said, I voted for Donald Trump. And if you ask Biden supporters, 55% said they voted against Donald Trump. So this was a uh, Trump referendum at the presidential level. And below that, it was uh, not a huge Democratic year. Okay. Doug, Doug, what stands out to you? Um, well, turnout's obviously one important feature. And we've never been in a situation where one of the candidates uh, attack voting by mail as being illegitimate. Uh, right. um, and so in past years, uh, the early vote and the election day vote were frequently quite similar. Uh, older people tended to take advantage of vote by mail. Uh, younger people tended to vote early in person. Um, and that completely flipped this year. So, um, and, um, the second is uh, enthusiasm. Uh, so uh, Trump voters voted on election day in much higher numbers than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some technical reasons why that tends to screw up the polls a bit due to likely voter screens. Um, and then the last was the unexpected vote of uh, African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, so African-Americans voted uh, over 95% for Barack Obama in 2012 and 2008 and had very high turnout. 
Um, they voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, the 2016 exit poll said 94%. Um, it's looking like, uh, as best we can tell, it was about a 90% of African-Americans voted for uh, Joe Biden, um, which is surprising um, in that uh, that's a higher level of defections than Democrats have experienced in that group. And then much, even more substantial uh, Latinos. Um, we knew something was up on election night when Miami-Dade County came in with a uh, basically an even split. This is a county that voted by over 200,000 votes for Hillary Clinton in right. um, 2016. And it was split evenly with a much higher turnout. Um, we thought, well, you know, they're Cubans in South Florida who are uh, you know, uh, conservative and anti-socialist. Uh, uh, but in fact, it was uh, across the country. You saw it in Texas. You saw it in the Central Valley of California that um, Latinos swung by uh, sometimes as much as 20, 25 points. Uh, towards uh, the Republicans. Um, you know, again, at this point, we don't really have a good idea of why that happened, though. Right. Uh, the, the big issue of the 2016 election and much of the Trump administration was immigration. And that was an issue that was pretty much absent from the 2020 election. Um, right. Doug, Dave, what were the issues besides Donald Trump? Well, the main issue I think that hurt the president was the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. He got, uh, we ran a series of regressions over the, uh, over the entire uh, last uh, 10, 12 weeks. And that, <clears throat> if you were a uh, moderate, a moderate Republican, uh, anybody who didn't think the president did uh, very well on the coronavirus, you were much more likely to uh, take him on. And among moderate Democrats, who are more likely to have voted for Trump, they were less likely depending upon uh, their, their opinion on how he managed coronavirus. At the end, uh, the, the economy kept coming back stronger and stronger and uh, all the way through the president had advantage on people who thought the economy would be better. But in the end, it wasn't enough to, uh, it wasn't enough to erase the long-term coronavirus effect. Okay. A uh, reminder, you're watching the uh, Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Dave Brady and Doug Rivers, and we'll be getting to audience questions shortly. So you still have time to get yours in if you'd like, and you just go down to the Q&A button and type in your question and we will get to it. Uh, gentlemen, after an election in which there is a change in power, there's a temptation to use the R word, not Republican, but realignment. Uh, in this election, it will appear that Joe Biden will flip Georgia. It would appear that he will flip Arizona. He will have won back the blue wall. Uh, Virginia, which was once a very Republican state, was an afterthought in terms of being competitive. Um, are we slowly seeing a realignment in American politics? Now, it add to that Texas, which becomes more competitive with each cycle. Colorado, which was once was a swing state, was never in play. Nevada. So can we use the R word or do we have to perhaps wait another cycle or two? Well, you could use it in the and in, in not in terms of an immediate, but in terms of a secular or long-term realignment. And the mm -hmm. and, and the, all the evidence that you just gave is uh, a result of the demographic changes. Yeah, uh, Texas becomes uh, more Latino, so on and so forth. Uh, younger, 
older people are uh, passing away and voting, and, and therefore that benefits Democrats. Now, I would say that if you went back to the uh, 2012 election, after that 2012 election, as you know, Bill, the uh, Republicans uh, did a bit of soul searching and talked about, came out with a plan that said, we've got to have more Hispanic voters. We've got to have a bigger tent. We've got to bring more people in. And then that didn't happen uh, actually with Donald Trump. But the fact is, if you look at the 2020 election results, uh, and go back to that 2013 report, I, I'd say there was uh, some merit in that report, given what Doug just told you about uh, the African-American vote and the Hispanic uh, Latino vote uh, going uh, more Republican. So uh, it seems to me there are prospects there. And I, my guess is the Republicans will be sitting down and uh, analyzing a bunch of data and trying to talk about where the party goes. Doug, what do you think? Because on the one hand, yes, Biden won those states. On the other hand, you didn't see the down ticket carnage that we thought might ensue. You saw Republicans may give up one or two seats or even three seats at most in the Senate. They're going to gain in the House. Uh, Democrats do not flip a single legislative chamber. So um, does that really speak to a realignment? I don't I don't think it does. Um, in terms of a sharp realignment, no. But as a continuation of a trend that's been going on. Um, we, uh, over the past 20 years, uh, the suburban white voters, particularly with a college degree, have been moving more democratic. Um, and that accelerated with Trump in 2016 and continued uh, this year. Um, the result of that is, uh, if you look at urban areas across the country and the inner ring of suburbs, uh, those are much more democratic now than they have been in the past. And I expect that will probably uh, keep at its current level or maybe increase a bit depending on what the parties do. Uh, the downside for Democrats is that uh, suburban voters are more moderate than uh, the uh, uh, minority parts of the Democratic coalition. Um, so if, if you get a uh, aggressive Democratic ag progressive agenda, um, similar to say what happened in 2009 and 10, uh, there could be a backlash. Um, and uh, you know, so that's a risk for Democrats. For Republicans, there's a similar move of, you know, how are Republicans winning uh, these Midwestern industrial states, and they're winning um, working class whites, uh, conventionally defined as whites without a college degree, and particularly men. Um, and will that uh, last if Republicans nominate a more conventional candidate than Trump? Um, you know, I, I think some of the overblown claims of we're just going to get a you know, reversal of the coalition. So the Republicans are going to be a working class uh, party. And, you know, people are talking about working class and Hispanics as the Republican coalition. That, that clearly is way premature. Um, but, you know, we are seeing a continuing evolution with Democrats making inroads in the Southwest. Right. Um, those are going to be tough to hang on to in two and four years. Uh, but that trend is, again, not brand new. Uh, and, you know, I expect it to continue. 
Uh, it's also, I guess you would include the New South in that conversation, Doug, North Carolina and Georgia. Speaking of Georgia, uh, there's still a lot of polling to be done. There are two Senate races uh, being held on January the 5th. Uh, as a pollster, Doug, when should a survey be done in Georgia? Because we have, it's complicated. You have two holidays stepping in the middle of this election. So when, when is it really worth kind of gathering public sentiment? Uh, well, the people who work for me aren't too happy about uh, polling uh, Georgia uh -huh. between Christmas and New Year's, uh, which is uh, when I think people are really going to start paying attention to that race. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, the polling has started on that right now. Just as people recover from the presidential election, we have people calling us, asking us for polls of Georgia. Right. And not to get too deep in the weeds, but how do you poll differently for a special election versus a general election? I mean, how do you, how do you calculate different turnout model? And you're smiling because this is, this is the $64,000 question, obviously. Yeah, so um, Georgia actually uploads on a daily basis a list of who's voted early and uh, who's requested a mail ballot, who's returned the mail ballot, um, and so forth. And um, and it reports its vote by uh, by method of voting. So we know how many people, how many of the mail voters voted for Biden, and how many for Trump, and how many of the election day voters voted. And it turns out that if you uh, uh, wait for that, uh, that is, you correct the data for uh, proportion of people voting by each type, uh, the Georgia miss is less than a point. Um, so we think re-interviewing people who told us how they voted in on November 3rd before they vote on January 5th uh, is likely to give a pretty good estimate of uh, what the outcome will be. But we'll see. We said that after uh, 2016 as well. Uh, Roger Mountford asked, was the, very high, was the very high turnout in the presidential election matched in congressional elections? If not, was this because voters were to some degree only interested in voting for or against Trump? Was there tactical voting for Biden, but for Republicans in Congress to create a balance of party? In other words, was there ticket splitting? People come out to vote for president. They don't come out to vote for Congress. If there's a congressional election, they'll come along. If there isn't a congressional election, they'll still come and vote. Um, that's why midterm congressional voting has a big drop off from general election voting. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, uh, the, the percent of people who abstain from the presidential elections uh, was less than a point this year. Um, in terms of uh, the other thing is, was there tactical voting? Um, one of our colleagues at Hoover, Mo Fiorina, has um, done work on balancing. That is, that people uh, sometimes seem to pick one candidate that's more conservative uh, when there's another candidate that's more liberal in a different race to get an outcome that's more moderate. Um, I'm a little skeptical of, from what I know of how people choose how to vote, uh, whether that's what's going on, but uh, it's certainly consistent with what happened this year where uh, Democrats won the presidential election by a decent amount, looks like the final margin will be 5%. Uh, but the overall congressional vote's gonna be almost break even, just slightly uh, more democratic. Um, in the pre-election polling missed worse on the congressional election than on the presidential. 
Okay. Split, Dave, split, ticket voting, split ticket voting has been going down for a long time. There used to be a large number of uh, senators uh, in a state that were split, one Republican, one Democrat. Uh, as we saw in 2016 uh, and 2020, there's only one state where you got a different result, the president and the Senate, and that was Susan Collins in Maine. And most of the Republican takeover in seats uh, were in districts that had been Republican and where the Democrats made gains in uh, 2018. Mm -hmm. So there was some split ticket voting, but very little. And, very, and, and if there's not split ticket voting, there seems to be a lot less evidence that they're uh, trying to balance things out. Okay, a question from George Hewn. George asks, are there characteristics of the Trump voter, suspicion of pollsters and of authority, which makes it difficult to poll? Doug? We don't know. Uh, that's one of the hypotheses was that uh, Trump voters uh, were participating at lower rates, um, which uh, I think is plausible. There's another story, the so-called shy Trump voters, that uh, Trump voters uh, are not willing to tell pollsters that they support Trump. Um, I, I think the lower participation one is probably more likely. Uh, we've gone back to people we polled before the election and asking them how they voted. And uh, we're getting 15% lower response rates for people who told us before the election they were uh, going to vote for Trump than for people who told us they were going to vote for Biden. Um, and that suggests that uh, Trump voters aren't very happy with uh, us pollsters. I, I agree. That's a that's a very plausible uh, that's a very plausible explanation. You do have to say there's. Uh, I think maybe they can make some purchase on that by comparing uh, phone polls with online polls, and uh, that that could make some difference because phone polls uh, just a question of who answers and and that Trump voters would be unhappier now, so they'd be less likely to respond. But with the internet polls, it should be somewhat different. But Doug's the expert on that. Okay, a question from someone you knew, Dave Brady, David Leo. David asks, in light of the increase in Latino and other minorities support for Trump, which Doug referenced earlier, how do you assess the demography as destiny hope of Democrats? Wrong, overstated, or basically on track? Well, I mean, it, so there is a long-term trend that shows those states that uh, are mentioned earlier uh, is, uh, is fine, uh, is moving the way you suggested it, it is. But uh, in any given time, young people, for example, in the 70s were going to be the white text era and others wrote the book about why the future of uh, the country is the Democratic Party. And then all of a sudden along comes Ronald Reagan and you have a lot of youth uh, voting Republican. So while you can't predict those, uh, you can't predict any individual election or what might happen in a particular circumstance, the long term trends are surely uh, moving in across the states already mentioned in a democratic way. Well, it's easy to project demography far out into the future. Uh, it's harder to project the political behavior of groups. Um, so uh, we are destined to have a larger uh, Latino population in the country than we have today, um, just by aging of people who are already uh, here. Uh, the political implications of that are more variable, and you know perhaps we will see a, a realignment in that direction. I think the um, 
one explanation for what's going on is that both African-Americans and Latinos have disproportionate number of non-college voters. And um, the result is uh, if Republicans are getting larger number of non-college voters, that would explain why they're uh, might be appealing more uh, to these groups. Um, you know, so uh, it's not clear that it's race. Let, let me give one other example of what might happen on that. So you see a tendency, long-term tendency for college educated voters to uh, be more democratic. But uh, I assure you those, those, and college educated voters generally make more money, but if you increase taxes a tremendous amount on those people, then you get a reversal of that, and suddenly they're not they're not quite so liberal. So uh, policy and politics uh, mix in uh, dif different ways with long-term trends. Okay, Doug, a question for you from Walter Robinson. Could you comment on the use of AI, artificial intelligence, and in polling? Expert.ai and unanimous.ai claim to have done a better job. They appear to look at social posts, for instance. So first, be wary of claims uh, of people how they magically got this election right. Uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with these uh, two particular ones, um, but the use of machine learning and uh, polling is something that uh, has grown uh, in recent years. So for example, the turnout models we use are uh, machine learning classification models. Um, we've worked on a method called multi-level regression and post-stratification, which is a real mouthful, uh, but it is a way of fitting high-dimensional models uh, typical of machine learning methods. Um, so this is definitely a, sort of, uh, both a research and increasingly a practical area. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question from Joe Sinat. Uh, my apologies, Joe, if I got your last name wrong. Uh, he asks, rookie question, for post-election analysis, do pollsters have access to individual ballot data? So for example, is it possible to count the number of ballots that voted Democratic for president and Republican for their Senate seat? Well, the vote tabulation counts that, uh, but it's uh, secret ballots. So we, the only way we can tell how an individual votes is to ask them. Uh, what we do get is whether somebody voted or not, and how they voted and their party registration mm -hmm. and the uh, precinct vote uh, where they voted. Um, so uh, this ties to the previous question about the use of um, AI type methods. Right. Um, there's a huge amount of data on how people vote. It's used by the campaigns uh, both sides have large analytics groups that uh, use these data and try to decide who to target on social media, whose door to knock on. Uh, and modern campaigning looks nothing like it did 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Dave Brady, a question that appeals to the political scientist in you. Richard Coyle asks, would representative democracy be better served if we bifurcated elections into one federal election controlled by the feds and one state local election run by local authorities? Such a federalist approach would allow states to allow or disallow voting campaigns, periods, identifications, et cetera. Well, all, all, all changes in voting system ha have effects that you're not, not quite sure of. So if you had 
one so just one this would be i gather just one without knowing the specifics it's hard to comment uh one, want, one, want one federal election with one standardized one federal election with one standardized uh yes then you'd get a, a majority winner but then uh, you might get is it a majority so is that with the majority rule or do you keep the plurality rule right. and if you uh, make it a plurality then you're likely to get a profusion of parties under what's called the duverger rule so uh whatever proposal you have you have to uh think it through though i do think given the uh, given the results there's a lot of pressure now and the large number of books written about changing the electoral college mm -hmm. my view is before you change the electoral college uh, which you can imagine the lawsuits going on now in the battleground states right. you'd have them across all 50 states but my view is we should uh, work a little harder on trying to straighten out the mail ballot and how those are going to be counted and uh, some standardized way so that every election we don't get these charges of uh, uh, voter fraud or on, and on the other hand, uh, continue to deal with questions of voter suppression depends on uh, where you stand, which is the one you think is the major issue. But the, elect that, the electoral form movements are coming along those lines. Each one has to be thought through pretty carefully. Mm -hmm. I would say that we already have a lot of elections uh, in the U.S. and the idea of splitting state and federal elections more so there are more times for people to vote. Mm -hmm. um, in most of the world, uh, you vote uh, for uh, one party once every you know, four to six years. Um, and in the United States, for better or worse, we have more elections than anywhere in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have to say of you know, trying to decide who to vote for in this election and figuring out who's running for Harbor Master and uh, uh, in state assembly districts and so forth, uh, I find it a bit challenged and I do this for a living. Okay. Uh, gentlemen, we have a question from Melanie Stagg. She asks, who are independents? Can they be described demographically? And let me tack on to that. If you look at the change in California's voting demographic, the surge you see is NPPs or no party preference independents. So how would you two describe the independent voter? Well, the independent voter, first of all, you, you have to make a distinction uh, in the way it's used in polls. First is when you ask the question, you remember a political party, you say a Democrat, Republican, or an independent. So if you get that and you get 30, 35% of people who say they're independent, but if you follow up that question with do you lean Democrat or Republican, mm -hmm. then it uh, sorts out. So there's uh, the independent on the first question versus the pure independent where you don't lean. Right. Uh, that's good. So what are they? They tend to be uh, more male. So I'm comparing them to Democrats and Republicans. They're more male uh, than the uh, than, than either the Republicans or which are about 50-50, and uh, more Democrats are female. So they're more male. They're more moderate, uh, and uh, essentially they're less interested in politics. And uh, at, at the broader level, 35% of immigrants they know less about politics. They don't know that much about government. Don't pay much attention to it. When you get to the level of pure independent, they get a little better on those issues. But there are people, uh, these are not the position voters who are deciding between the left and the right. Generally, uh, independent voters uh, care less about politics than others. Mm -hmm. Doug? Well, we've also gone to uh, the jungle primary in California. So 
the incentive to be associated with a political party or vote in its primary has decreased quite a bit. Um, the uh, so I think that has something to, uh, to do with the rise of decline to state or independent voters. Um, California is a quite democratic state these days. Uh, I, I think that trend's pretty clear. Yes. I'd love to ask uh, two of you the last time you went to the French Laundry, but that's another conversation for another day, I think. <laughs> I'm ready to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> actually, so actually, when I first heard that story about Governor Newsom going to the French Laundry, Doug, my thought was, this is what a Brady administration would look like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about the optics. Uh, gentlemen, a question from James Nathanson. To what extent do you think polls influence the outcome of an election? It's a good question because the polls showed Hillary Clinton leading. She did not win the election. The polls show Joe Biden leading. It appears he will win this election. So to what extent do polls influence the outcome of elections? Yeah, so I got all sorts of nasty emails uh, after uh, one of our podcasts saying that I had either destroyed the Trump vote or the Biden vote by yes. uh, reporting that Biden was ahead. Um, it was They were split about equally that way. Uh, it's not obvious what the effect would be um, and I hope no one decides to vote or not to vote based on what the polls show. Um, there's been plenty of polling that's been off and uh, uh, the purpose of polling is to uh, inform what's going on, not to substitute for it. I, I think that is a uh, first rate question. And I think that as uh, political scientists, we don't have any answer to that question. There was a little bit of work ages ago yes. in the 1980 election of what the impact of knowing what the outcome of the election was. And the amazing thing was most people just stayed in line and continued to vote, yeah. even though Jimmy Carter had conceded. Um, and, That's the uh, only study I know, and it's not very relevant today. I mean, I, I, can, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, whether it has any effect. It does raise a question is the utility of polls in terms of political coverage and voters making up their minds. Um, are polls most valuable in terms of giving us a point spread, if you will, to liken this to sports? Or are polls most valuable in terms of telling us, let's say, policy preferences, what, what's on voters' minds? Well, polling is a way for people to express uh, what they like about candidates or policies um, that they don't otherwise get. We don't have national referenda. So if you are uh, you know, in favor of Obamacare or opposed to it, um, you know, polling is the only way the average person gets to express their preference. Um, they can do it indirectly by voting for candidates. But Dave and I did a piece in the Wall Street Journal in 2014, uh, arguing that Obamacare had uh, really hurt uh, Democrats in that election. Um, it's clear in 2018 that Obamacare had become more popular and it was helping Democrats. Um, there are issues like gay marriage where we wouldn't have any good idea where the public stood on something like that um, if there weren't polling. So uh, I think there's an important role for polling uh, and you know, telling you who's going to win uh, is not the most important piece of that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great answer. I don't have anything to add. 
Okay, uh, a question from Paul Brophy. Paul Brophy asks, Senate polls appear to have been even more off in favor of Democratic candidates. Seats in Maine, Kansas, South Carolina, Montana were called as toss-up or favoring Democrat in Maine, yet Republican candidates won by double-digit leads compared to final polls. Why such a difference in all of them? And I guess, Doug, this is just the larger-than-anticipated Trump turnout. Yeah, so the main one was quite incredible. You know, there, um, fortunately, I didn't do any polling in the main Senate race, so I don't know how wrong I would have been, but I suspect it would have you, been. She never led in a poll. By a fair amount, yes. And, you know, there, the, there were polls, done good quality polls that had uh, Sarah Gideon uh, up by 17 points in Maine and ended up losing by, I don't know, about five statewide. I, I don't remember the exact number, but yeah, that's a right. huge miss on that. Um, the North Carolina race was generally viewed as lean Democratic, and it ended up being a Republican. Uh, but there were other places like Arizona where the polls were right on on the Senate race. Um, so at this point, we don't have enough data to uh, figure out uh, what the problem was in those races? Well, the North Carolina race was was close, right? And uh, in the polling, uh, kind there of, were some events that intervened. Yeah, there were some events in there where he sexted uh, some uh, consultant, and uh, the Montana poll race was that was that ended up being a reasonably uh, close close race. So. Yeah. Right there is off. Um, speaking of Maine, Maine has ranked choice voting, and uh, that was Susan Collins' fear that she would not get 50%. It would then go to uh, the next round of voting, and she would lose in ranked choice voting. You uh, calculate the second choice into the numbers. Uh, this leads to a question from Brian Hegarty. Going back to the primaries, do you think approval voting or ranked choice voting would be a better way to vote, given what you know about how people vote in primaries? Well, the, pro the primary, so one of the the studies of political science show what happens in the primaries is turnout in the primaries is much lower it is in the general, for, particularly for House and the Senate seats. And what happens is uh, primary voters in the Democratic Party tend to be further left than the mean of the state or median of the state. And primary voters in the Republican Party are more conservative. So mm -hmm. you get that. And then the, uh, an excellent uh, study showed that what happens is uh, interviewed a whole bunch of state legislators. And it turns out there are moderate state legislatures, but they wouldn't run for the House, the House of Representatives of the U.S. And the reason was it's much harder for them to get money, i.e., Candidates on the left generate money faster than uh, moderates, and candidates on the right also generate more money. So, um, so the primaries uh, primaries have have a huge effect. And and the and the so one uh, one final point: if you think of ranked choice voting in Maine, the other candidate was a Green Party candidate, and part of the reason the argument was, well, okay, all the votes will go to the Democrat on the second go around. So you get all kinds of strategy and like that. And pretty soon you got 14 candidates. So none, there are no voting schemes that I know of that solve all problems. I think there's a theorem about that. Yes, there is. Okay, we have a question from Chantel Miles. Is there value in standardizing polling methodologies to enhance data quality? You're gonna put me out of business if everyone does the same thing. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, uh, yeah. there are, professional organizations where uh, uh, pollsters 
present uh, research on what they've done. Um, after the 2016 election, uh, the American Association for Public Opinion Research, which is a kind of half academic, half practitioner organization, uh, did a post-mortem on what went wrong in the polls. I was one of the co-authors of that. Uh, they started this year before the election and will have a post-mortem out uh, sometime uh, next year. Um, so, um, you know, people do react and uh, you may have heard that there were some state polls that didn't wait on education in 2016 and some people thought that was the crux of the problem. Uh, most everybody in 2016 uh, did wait on education. It didn't fix anything. Um, and in fact, um, one poll in Iowa that got the outcome right was the uh, Ann Seltzer poll. She does mm -hmm. not wait on education. Right. So much for that. <laughs> okay. Um, the Des Moines, the Iowa poll also was, I think, spot on pretty much for both the Senate race and the um, Trump race. I think they had Trump up by 781 by nine. It was the same exact pattern as 2016. So, uh, and that seems to be one of the narratives coming out of this. We just kind of gravitate toward the really bad examples. What Dave mentioned earlier, the Washington Post ABC poll that had Biden up by 17 points in Wisconsin, for example, uh, the shock polls in states like Florida that had Biden way ahead. But we just don't kind of look at the big picture, which is at polls, especially the national vote, they tended to show the correct trend, right? I think, I think yep. that's right. The percentage, the end, the end percentage uh, for the Democrats is, as I said earlier, not that far off. The problem was, as Doug mentioned earlier, and you've mentioned, uh, we're not picking up all the Republicans that we should pick up, and so that that that's a gap that I have to deal with. And there's several reasons for that that we've discussed. Yeah, we did a weekly. Uh, poll for CBS that they uh, used to publish a map that classified the races. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, every state that we had that was uh, leaning or likely Democratic, uh, Biden won. Every state that was leaning or likely Republican, mm -hmm. uh, Trump won. Um, and we had six toss-ups, which were Arizona, uh, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I believe. Um, three of those were the last three to be called. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, Wisconsin, uh, well, I think most of those were legitimately toss-ups. Uh, Florida was not. And uh, um, so I think overall, you didn't get a completely distorted story, but you right. know, we should admit that we were too democratic. It was in the lower range of what people thought was possible, uh, not in the middle of the range. Yeah. And I think, David, at the end of the day, what you have is just a reshuffled deck. The fact that Biden could end up winning this thing 306 to 232 when Trump won at 306 to 232 in 2016 shows a certain symmetry to what's going on here. Well, re, yeah, and uh, the different, and I think that's what it will end up because recounts, as we look at recounts over time, Carl Rove had a column on that. Recounts, you just uh, uh, for, uh, say the fourteen thousand votes that Biden has uh, lead in Georgia, recounts do not change that. 
in 2016, when they recounted Wisconsin, the end result of the Wisconsin recount was Trump had 122 more votes, something like that. Right. So now we move on to 2022 and 2024, and I anxiously await uh, Doug Rivers' first polls on both of those elections <laughs> next week. Right, Doug? Too soon. <laughs> soon. Uh, but no, let's let's close out. Let me ask you both a very big picture question. Uh, we look as as political scientists, uh, we look at the political system in America, the way elections are held, and there is a lot of room for improvement. There's a, a lot of things we can quibble about. We can quibble about how politicians go about elections. They don't talk about policy. They instead, they make it personal. They attack their opponent. Uh, Lord knows we could have multiple broadcasts on how the media pursue elections. Every four years, they promise to not do the horse race, they end up doing the horse race. Um, but polling, polling now will now go back and revisit itself as it did in 2017 and ask how can we do things better? So two questions here, gentlemen. First of all, how can polling do a better job uh, versus 2020 and 2016? And then secondly, as political scientists, what improvements do we, do we need to make in America's election system? Well, the second one, uh, we, we, need, uh, we, we need to increase the trust levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, on the Democratic side, the issue is always voter suppression. And on the Republican side, it's voter fraud. Mm -hmm. And as long as those issues, and I see now something like uh, some, a majority of Republicans now believe this election is not going to be counted fairly. Th right. Those are not good things. So uh, there is a general trust deficit in the United States on issues and on, on government. And, uh, across, and also across institutions, I, I think the first thing we need to do is fix the electoral system, particularly the idea of how we're going to do mail-in voting, which is not going away, and set it up so that there's a general level of trust so that both parties have ways to look at things so they can say they trust the election result. Okay, Doug, I'll give you the final word. Just what, I know it's just soon after the election, mm -hmm. but as you look at polling, what fixes come to mind? What improvements come to mind? Well, most of them I don't think would be terribly interesting to the audience. Um, I think the big problem at the moment is polarization in American politics, and that causes problems for polling. Because uh, if you can identify somebody as a Trump voter or as an anti-Trump voter, you know exactly uh, how they're going to feel on um, the whole range of issues. Um, and uh, it would be a healthier environment for uh, for governing and uh, <clears throat> polling would be more informative if uh, there weren't these high levels of polarization. Um, having said that, I have no clue how uh, what we might do to reduce that. Um, I think the first thing you're going to need is people with very good people skills making the phone calls to do polls because you call the wrong house and you're going to get five minutes of an angry diatribe about how polls are rigged. Indeed. Okay. Uh, Dave Brady, Doug Rivers, uh, thanks for taking part in the briefing today. We appreciate your insights as always. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you, the audience, for joining us on this call today, for both taking time out of your schedule and for taking an interest in the Hoover Institution. Be sure to check our upcoming events listed at hoover.org backslash events, Toy Boat.
<laughs> there you'll see a list of programming throughout the end of the year. I also encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It's a recap of all that's going on here, essays, analyses, videos, profiles, broadcasts like these. And to get to that, you go to hoover.org, click on the publications tab. You'll see a link that says Hoover Daily Report. You click on that, then click on the subscribe button, and there you go. You'll get the Daily Report in your inbox weekdays, right about this time of the day, giving you the best work of our fellows, most certainly including Dave Brady and Doug Rivers. Thanks again for joining us today. On behalf of my colleagues, David Brady and Douglas Rivers, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe and stay healthy. And we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon. In the meanwhile, have a great, great Thanksgiving. Take care. Mm -hmm.